This morning's text is uh, Philippians chapter 4, 10 to 13. The words are in your uh, program guide. They're also going to be on the screen, Philippians 4. The Apostle Paul says this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. And we offer to you now the prayer of Psalm 90. Lord, we pray that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love, that we might rejoice and be glad all of our days. Father, take these small words, this short time, this sinful man, and multiply it out to your people as you did fish and loaves into feeding 5,000. Lord Jesus, we know that with you, very little can be very much. And so we ask that you would come and attend the preaching of your word and make it much for your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, this morning, I, I want to lodge an official protest. I want to lodge an official protest against a certain kind of Christianity, a certain type of Christianity, and I, I want to call it a cough syrup Christianity, cough syrup Christianity. And, you know, if you've ever had to give one of your kids or any kid medicine or a cough syrup, you kind of know how this little interaction goes. You know, you say, Johnny, I need you to take this cough medicine. And they say, no, daddy, it's, it's terrible. It tastes awful. It's going to burn going down. And, and you say, I know it tastes bad. It's really a drag. It's going to burn your throat, but it's really good for you. And so drink it anyway, and it'll make you feel better. Now think if we're honest with ourselves at times, we portray Jesus and Christianity that way, that really, you know, it, Christian life is kind of a bummer. It's kind of a drag. It's kind of, you know, boring, goes on and on, it kind of burns going down, but in the end, it'll really be good for you. So drink it now and you'll enjoy it later. Cough syrup, Christianity, cough syrup, Savior. And what I want to say this morning is that Paul is, Paul's intention here, Jesus' intention here is to literally kill that mentality, to literally destroy it, to, to make it dead in our hearts and our minds. Because if Jesus is, if he is the kind of Savior that, that we describe as, well, he's really kind of boring and dull and irrelevant, but he's good for you in the end. He tastes bad going down, but drink him now. He's not really a very glorious, awe-striking Savior. But if we can say what he provides even now is contentment and satisfaction and joy, then we have a Savior to talk about. We have a Savior who is glorious. And, and this is Jesus' real purpose in our lives when I talk about joy and satisfaction. How do I know that? We can go through a lot of verses. I'll just give you a couple. Think about Jesus' words in John 15, 11. What does he say? These things I've spoken to you because. Why? So that my joy could be in you and that your joy would be full. John 10, 10, I have come. Why did I come? Why did Jesus come? I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Have it abundantly, 
so to speak. Psalm 37, 4, not a suggestion, a command, a commandment. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 16, 11, with you at your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Often we think of God in that way. At his right hand are pleasures forever and ever. Well, into this context comes Paul, comes the words we just read from Philippians 4. And if you know anything about Philippians, if you've read Philippians before, you know that Paul is actually writing this letter. It's kind of called Paul's letter of joy, but he's writing it from a prison, a Roman, dark, dank, torturous prison, probably chained to a wall or chained to another guard. And he's writing while he's hungry and thirsty and lonely. You know, he doesn't have uh, Facebook or text messaging to keep in touch with the church at Philippi. He can't, uh, he can't hear from his friends. In fact, he's saying here he hasn't heard from them in a long time until they send him this small gift. And so Paul is at a place of severe pain and isolation, uh, I would call it. And yet he writes these words. Verse 11, I already read them, I'll read it. Verse 11 again. He says, look, I'm not speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. There's Paul, hungry, no TV, no movies, no entertainment, suffering. And he says, I have learned in whatever situation to be content. And I want to ask the question this morning, what did Paul know that we don't know? What did Paul know that I don't know? What did Paul experience that I fail to experience. Paul has rest and peace and satisfaction and joy when everything else is gone. What did he know that I didn't know? How can you and I, in different times, in a different circumstance, but maybe one in which not less pain is occurring, how can we also be satisfied and content and have joy? How would Jesus be sufficient in those times. I think what Paul is trying to do is trying to open our eyes to see something that we haven't yet seen, to see Jesus in a way that we haven't yet seen him, to make sure we see that he is not a cough syrup savior. You know, you could say a lot of things about Jesus. You could call Jesus a lot of names, but boring is not an adjective that I would ascribe to his name, to his, to his person. I mean, can you imagine what it must have been like to be with Jesus on a daily basis? you imagine what it would have been like? I mean, Jesus is a man who is dangerous and bold and uh, courageous and always on the run and uh, compassionate and, and loving and yet always being attacked and chased. I mean, one day he's got a baby on his lap, rocking a baby, and the next day he's taking a whip into the temple and driving people out. I mean, one day he's healing lepers, and the next day he's talking to the religious leaders and calling them whitewashed tombs and brood of vipers. One day he is weeping at the tomb of his friend, and the next day he's feeding thousands and thousands with bread that he has made. There's always some new challenger standing up to challenge Jesus. Rabbi, show us this, prove us this, give us this sign, do this for us. And he's just defeating them one by one. I mean, being with Jesus must have been one of the most exhilarating things you can imagine. I mean, he's on the run from the crowds. They're trying to attack him and kill him at times. He's he's all over the place traveling. So people like me, preachers like me, might make Jesus seem boring. But if we really start to enter his life, we see he's anything but 
boring. And in fact, one of the reasons we even have part of the New Testament is because he did so many exciting, mind-blowing, mind-emblazoning things that could never be forgotten. They were so unforgettable, they had to be written down and recorded. So he's not a cough syrup savior. And we see Paul giving us that. And what Paul is saying here in verse 11 is that, look, it's not enough to just endure prison. It's not enough for me just to live through prison and say, okay, it's not enough for me just to kind of, you know, have these platitudes about God and say, well, he'll, he'll take care of me. I'm just trusting in God. Everything's really hard. Paul commands rejoicing in prison. That's what he says in verse four. Paul commands contentment and satisfaction, even in the midst of imprisonment, even in the midst of oppression. And what he's trying to show us is that Jesus came not simply to save us, but to satisfy us. We're not simply saved by Jesus, but his intention is to make us satisfied in Jesus. Or maybe to put it a better way to say that one of the results of his salvation, one of the results of what Jesus does in saving us is to give us himself to satisfy us. That's why I pray that prayer, Psalm 9014. Satisfy us in the morning, O Lord. That's what we're seeking. We're not seeking just simply to be informed, to be taught. We want to be satisfied in the morning with his steadfast love. And that's where the contest is. So the battle is in our hearts, especially in our culture, especially in uh, American society, to be satisfied in the sufficiency of Christ is a battle in our hearts. And now if you're, you might be listening and maybe you're, maybe you're a skeptic, maybe you're kind of like, I'm not sure what I believe about Jesus. I'm not sure what I really think about Christianity yet or um, I'm not really, just not there. And, and you might be hearing me say, Jesus is here for your joy and your satisfaction. And you might be saying, now Jesus suddenly sounds very relevant to my life. Because what you might be hearing me say is, Jesus wants my happiness. Jesus wants my satisfaction. And therefore, I just simply need to find out what that is, what I want, what makes me happy in life. And I just go full bore after that thing. If you're hearing me say that, you're hearing it incorrectly. And you could be on the verge of one of the greatest mistakes of your life. Because God does not intend for you to be satisfied and happy in other things but in him alone. The other things are lesser, inferior joys. It doesn't mean he doesn't want you to have joy. He wants you to have infinite joy. And if we're honest with ourselves, we would admit that, that our chasing, and we're all guilty of this, but our chasing after the other things that should lead to happiness and joy and satisfaction really always come up short in the end, don't they? Don't they always come up short? Aren't they always a verification to us that the new thrill, the new gadget, the new thing, the new relationship, the new affair, the new whatever it is, technological gadget, promises a deliverance, but it only lasts a short time. And God says, you're not, you're not made just for these lesser joys. You're not made for inferior joy. You're made for infinite joy. And so if you're made for infinite joy and you're seeking infinite joy, then it only makes sense to attach that quest to an infinite object. In other words, why would you attach your desire for great, lasting, infinite joy to something that's not going to last? Instead, you attach it to God himself, the only innately infinite being in the universe. And I think we see again and again, this is true. I read just recently that 
uh, you and I as Americans in general, we will have 33,000 more hours of leisure than people in our country who just lived 80 years before us. I'm not talking like 500 years, just 80 years ago, people lived in the 1920s. We will have 33,000 more leisure hours, and yet 71% of Americans say that their lives are absolutely boring, filled with boredom, filled with irrelevance, filled with dissatisfaction and lack of content. So what he says is you can, if you give up the inferior joy, you can have infinite joy in Christ, and you can have it today. You can have it today. Why would we want it? Why would we want something like this? I mean, I think in a sense it's obvious, but um, there's, there's several things we could say here. But I want to look at verse 12 and see exactly what Paul does say. He says it like this. Listen, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, facing abundance and need. What does Paul say? He says, listen, if Jesus is sufficient, if he is really satisfactory as he says he is, then you will be untouchable. You'll be untouchable in the circumstances of your life in a large sense. What is Paul saying? He's saying, look, you can chain me, you can beat me, you can mock me, you can put me in prison, you can kill me tomorrow. All those things are fine. He even says in 121, to die is gain because it means to go and be with Christ. So you can do all these things to me, Paul says. You can even, whether it's bad or good, you can do all these things, and I will still be untouchable because Christ is that powerful, that sufficient. And if you notice, Paul mentions here several kind of pictures of his pain. He talks about he knows what it is to be brought low, to be made low. He knows what it is to be in pain. He knows what it is to be in need. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to experience sorrow and pain. Some of you come in this morning right beside him. Some of you left pillows on your bed that were still wet with tears, cried last night. Some of you come in great pain and sorrow. So it's important to see that Paul's not talking about some kind of glib smile Christianity, some kind of fake it till you make it, some kind of muttered platitudes about God's goodness Christianity. He's talking about a real deep penetrating sense of joy and satisfaction that lasts in and above and around the pain, a kind of satisfaction and joy that will allow us to sing through tears, that allows us to have Joy in sadness allows us to have rejoicing in suffering, to give when we're at a loss, to feel full when we're empty. It is a real, deep, abiding sense of joy and satisfaction. And Paul is saying that that kind of joy in Christ will make you, in a sense, untouchable. Not untouchable to the circumstances that will come, but untouchable to their victory over you in your life. Because for the believer, the promise is that though weeping tarries for the night, joy comes in the morning. And my great fear as we think about these things, that we think about 
issues of pain and depth and suffering and hardship in our life, my great fear is that what we will do is use all the things in our culture that are at our disposal to distract ourselves and to numb ourselves, to take that pain and just say, I just got to distract myself. I got to numb myself. You know, you can flip through 800 channels. There doesn't have to be anything on TV. You can take up all your time just simply flipping to see if there is anything on TV. In our world today, our culture tends to be focused on very trivial things, very distracting things. And, and as we think about God and, and we start to think, you know, he seems so aloof, he seems so far away, he seems so irrelevant, so boring, I wonder if it's because we've distracted ourselves and numbed ourselves to death. So we've almost undone our capacity for him. We've almost undone our capacity to stand in the midst of greatness you know, I've worked at camps before, and I've seen kids come to camps, and you're showing them this majestic views and mountains and uh, ponds and all this kind of stuff, and they have no appreciation. They're like stuck to some game in their hands because they've lost their capacity to appreciate it. And my fear, my great fear is that we would use these distractions to undo our capacity to atrophy ourselves, our, our heart and mind muscles that are made to experience and stand in awe of great things that we would distract ourselves and numb ourselves in pain. I mean, do you know, you know how I deal with times of pain, times when it just feels hard and depression and severe hardship? You know what I do with those times? I go home and I do this. I click on the TV. I know you're all expecting something very spiritual there. In a sense, I wish I did say something very spiritual, but that is, that is a battle in my heart to just have on the noise, just have it on in the car, have it on the TV, to just distract and numb myself when things are hard. I came up with four words I think probably describe, some of us can find ourselves in, in each of these words. When things are hard, what do we do to distract and numb ourselves? Uh, eating, shopping, working, watching. Eating, shopping, working, watching. We probably don't even recognize it sometimes that we're taking those things. It's not that those are bad things, but we're using them for the wrong reasons. And we're taking those things and stuffing inside of us things that should not be stuffed and numbing ourselves to what the reality really is. But what does Paul say? In verse 12, he says, I have learned the secret. And that word is a technical Greek word. It basically means I've been initiated into the secret. I've been initiated into the secret. And what he's saying is, I've taken every event and circumstance, every painful reality in my life, and instead of distracting and knowing myself, I've let it initiate me into seeing the reality and the sufficiency of Christ. Jesus, instead of you, instead of you being numbed and distracted, he wants to show himself to you as all-sufficient, not simply a cough syrup savior. And he wants you to take every circumstance as an initiation rite, as it were, into finding him sufficient and satisfying in all things. Now, there's, there's a great illustration of this in, uh, in a man named Polycarp, and I know I've used probably a good many historical illustrations, but it's my last week, so if you don't like them, it's almost over, but I can do whatever I want because it's the last time. But there was a man named uh, Polycarp, and he has a weird name because he lived a long time ago. He was, died in 150 A.D. He was a disciple of 
uh, the Apostle John, and he was one of the first church bishops. And when he was 86 years old, he was arrested because he was a Christian. He was arrested for believing in Christ and saying Jesus is Lord and not Caesar's Lord. And he was brought before the governor. And the governor said, deny Christ and you can have your life. Deny Christ and you can have your life. This is what Polycarp responds to him. He says, for 86 years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How will I now blaspheme my king? The governor became more angry at that. He said, I'll tell you what, if that, if that doesn't work, how about this? I'll turn the lions on you. That's what they did to Christians in those days many times, let the lions and uh, beasts come and attack them. He said, I'll turn the lions on you and let them ravage you. You know what Polycarp said? I love this. Called him. Called him. You have to understand he's not calling a bluff. The guy's not bluffing. He probably can see the lions in the distance. And he says, call them. The governor gets more and more infuriated, even more angry because he won't give in, even to lions. He says, I'll tell you what, if lions don't work, I'll tie you to a stake and I'll set you on fire. I'll burn you at the stake. And his response blows me away. Polycarp said, you threaten with fire that will soon burn and be gone. And you know nothing of the eternal fire that burns unceasing. Why do you wait? Kindle the fire and do what you will. And at that, they rushed in and took the 86-year-old man and lit him on fire. And as the flames licked his feet, he actually began to pray. O Lord God Almighty, you are the faithful and true God. It is my honor and joy to offer myself as a martyr on your behalf this day. To you be glory forever. And the flames consumed his body. That's untouchable. That's a man that has nothing to fear, whose circumstances cannot stop. Because he says, even with the Apostle Paul in, in 121, to die is gain. Death can be gain. And so Polycarp was, in a sense, because of Jesus' sufficiency to satisfy him even in that time, he was untouchable in his contentment. Now, there's one other thing about verse 12 that I want us to see before we move on because I think it's important, maybe even more important than thinking about the pain, especially in our society. Paul says this in verse 12. He says, you know, he talks about being brought low and being hungry and all that stuff, but he also says, I know how to abound. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and facing abundance. You would use the word face. You know, I face my adversary. I face my foe. I face a trial. He says, I face prosperity. I face abundance. In other words, he's saying it may actually be harder to live with prosperity than with pain. In fact, John Calvin said it's, it's, it's much harder and much rarer to see a Christian endure prosperity than it is to see him endure poverty. Because in poverty, we're on our knees and clinging to anything we can grab. 
But in prosperity, we're saying, look at all this satisfaction I have now. You have all these other means and realms to have satisfaction. John Piper uh, says this, and I, I love this quote, talking about facing prosperity. He says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but it's apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video. It's the primetime drivel of triviality we drink in every night. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. And so I just ask us just just a check question, a heart question. I asked a very similar one last week about pain. But I would say as we think about the prosperity and the affluence in our society, and we think about our relationship to God, how would you answer this question? If I could come and tell you that I have in my hands and I'm willing to give you the winning Powerball lotto ticket, and I don't know what it is up to now. Let's say it's $350 million. But I can hand you the winning $350 million ticket but as I hand that to you, Christ is gone. Or I can give you basically very little means, very little success in life, but I can give you Christ. Which one do you choose? And I'll just be honest, that's a battle. That's a fight. When you live in the society we live in and see and have the things that we have. And so he would have us, even in the midst of prosperity, to cultivate, cultivate a hunger and a desire for God. Now, how do we get it? How do we do it? How do we get it? It's verse 13, one of the most common and, and often quoted verses in Scripture, I think. Paul says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, when I was a kid, when I was in uh, junior high, my parents gave me this, this picture. It was kind of a, a plaque, and it had... That verse in it, you know, I can do all things through him that strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. And, and around it, it had, you know, all these uh, sports metaphors like baseballs and basketballs, footballs and things like that. And I love football. And I, I thought I was going to be, you know, a Division One athlete, star receiver, something like that. And, and so I thought, man, I can even, Christ is going to, Christ is promising me Division One athlete star status here because he's saying I can do anything because he's going to strengthen me. Now, it took till about ninth grade till I figured out that was not going to be a reality for me. It just wasn't going to happen, no matter how hard I worked or how hard I tried. But what I want us to see is that what, and that, that's how the verse can be misused, but what Paul is trying to say is Jesus does not want to, he's not aiming to strengthen you to give you success at sports or success in business or to help you find the perfect mate or to be rich and famous, though he might do any of those things, but that's not the chief aim. He actually wants to strengthen you to do something much harder and much better, and that is to have satisfaction and contentment in him, regardless of whether you're surrounded by pain or by pleasure. That is what the strength is for. That is what he is claiming to give you strength for. And the most important word in that verse is the word him. I've already alluded to it, but if you trace it back to verse 10 and uh, other verses, you'll see that he means him. the him is Christ. Paul is drawing our attention back. Why? Drawing our attention back to it's Christ that strengthens us, not only to put a hammer to our self-sufficiency, but also 
to draw our mind back to the life of Christ and say, who was it that had what we might consider the most miserable life ever to exist? He had more poverty, more shame, more dishonor, more uh, humiliating death, more physical pain, more loneliness. It was Jesus. Jesus had what we might consider the most miserable life you could ever live. And yet it says, I love this verse in Hebrews 12 too, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God. He went to the cross with joy. That's the sufficiency and the strength and the satisfying power of Christ. That is what he can do. So there's one final question that probably plagues us here, and probably a few of you are asking this. If you are asking this question, then you've really been paying attention, and uh, I appreciate it. But you might be saying, you've talked a lot about joy and satisfaction and um, you know, our, our pleasure and our contentment, but you're, aren't you missing the fact that God says the universe is all about displaying his glory and not ours? We're only secondary, and God is primary. God is, God is about displaying his glory. And I would say, absolutely, but... And I'll give you an illustration to try to illustrate this. If, if you were to observe me with my wife, and just imagine that, imagine, you know, if you could, that we had the perfect relationship. And imagine that every time you saw me, I was talking about her and how great she was. And you always noticed how much I enjoyed her and how much pleasure I took in her and how much I just rested in her love. And I couldn't get, you know, enough of her. What would you naturally conclude about my wife? I think you would probably say, she must be amazing. She must be an amazing person. And that's because my joy and satisfaction and pleasure in her is an echo of her excellence. It's a picture of her greatness. And so it is gloriously intended that our satisfaction, our joy, our contentment, our talking about God and his sufficiency, whether in pl- pleasure or pain becomes the means by which God himself is glorified. And that's why Paul is able to end this passage in verse 19 and 20 to say, to God alone be the glory forever and ever. God wants, Jesus wants to be the bridge on whom you put your weight. He wants to be the fountain that quenches your thirst. He wants to be the bread that quells your hunger. He wants to be the the foundation that withstands your earthquakes. Because by it, you will receive infinite satisfaction and he will receive infinite glory. May Christ strengthen us for just that thing. Let's pray.